You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kate Woodson, a writer and producer with Washington Post Opinions. And today I'm so pleased to be joined by Academy Award-winning actor, filmmaker, and author Tom Hanks and Jeffrey Robinson, the founder and executive director of the Who We Are Project. They've teamed up on a new animated short documentary, How to Rig an Election, the racist history of the 1876 presidential contest. Gentlemen, I'm so glad we're together. Thanks Thank for you being for having here. us. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's, let's start with the origins. Um, Jeffrey, you're a civil rights lawyer now in the filmmaking biz. What was the catalyst for this collaboration with Tom? Well, uh, the Who We Are Project produced a documentary film, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America, and Sony Pictures Classics was the distributor. And they suggested that we send copies of the film to different people before it was released, and one of those people was Tom Hanks. And so I wrote an email, and we sent off uh, a copy of the film, and I thought that would be it. And then I started getting emails from somebody that was TH, and I thought, who is this guy? And then I thought, oh, it's that guy. And <clears throat> that started a collaboration because I found out that Tom has a compelling interest in history. And the Who We Are Project is all about part of our history that has never been told. And so that was the beginning of our collaboration. And I should say, maybe Tom, you can talk about it. Tom had written an op-ed on uh, the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. And that was one of the reasons that we thought, well, we'll send the film to him because he sounded kind of outraged that nobody taught me this. Yo, what's up? And that was how our collaboration started. Tom, why, why tell this part of history now? Well, I grew up in Oakland, California, about as diverse racially a city as you're going to find in the United States. <clears throat> uh, I, had, I had always loved history. It was my favorite class in, uh, in school in fifth grade, in seventh grade, in 10th grade, in junior college. And I've always read history for pleasure because you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> And it wasn't until I was 64 years old that I had heard about the Tulsa massacre. Coming from after years and years of official study in which I learned about the Boston massacre, I learned about uh, Custer's last stand, I learned about any number of other massacres in the history of our country. And yet here's something as <clears throat> sentinel to who we are, to, uh, to, to, to coin a phrase, as far as um, uh, social justice, justice, civic unrest, and the racial equality that has sort of been promised us for the better part of 100 years, the fact that I had never been told this, I realized would have greatly impacted my sensibilities of, of the city that I lived in, Oakland, California, at a time when racial strife was part and parcel to, to every day, despite the fact that Oakland is a is about as as um, as integrated. Let use that word a city as you're going to find. Um, my yeah, I, I just wrote it sort of as a I wrote the op-ed pieces of, of a sort of how come I wasn't who decided that uh, <clears throat> this lesson, this moment, this this incredibly um, uh, 
devices and I think uh, impactful uh, record of American history was not taught to us at a time when there was no reason for it not to be outside of some sort of fear that uh, <clears throat> we couldn't handle it. So to to get that uh, uh, to get that email right, the timing was awfully good. That did deal. Uh, 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 with the Tulsa massacre from Jeff Jeffrey's movie, it just made me think that there is a lack of trust that we as Americans, we as students of history, can dispassionately learn about what happened a hundred years ago, sixty years ago, or in in some cases, I think even forty or or twenty two years ago. I think it's I think we're all big kids. And none of us, I think, are are uh, going to be uh, subjected to some sort of mind-altering change if we learn the truth about our own individual history. It's easy to accept because um, uh, one of the things that uh, that Jeffrey so magnificently uh, spoke of at the very beginning of uh, the Who We Are project is the great George or Orwell quote. Um, if you control the present, you if you control the past, you can control the control the present. I'm I'm marring the words of uh, of George Orwell. Jeffrey can hit it up better, but I don't think there's anything more uh, empowering to the powers of ignorance or the uh, the uh, um, the uh, accumulation of power of, of of certain tyrants around the world than the altering of the narrative, the revisionist history of the controlling of the past in order to control. Not only the present, but also controlled the uh, the whole entire concept of who are we? Who are we as Americans? We're conflicted, and we have an amazing history that once we learn even more about it, it helps us understand who we are now and where we can go tomorrow. And so much, I think, um, of our understanding or acceptance of a, a part of history is shaped by our personal experiences and our backgrounds, It's the lens through which we look. One of the things I find so special about this collaboration is that while you were getting to know each other, you found out that you um, you were born about a month apart, both grew up in mid-tier cities in America, Oakland and Memphis. So you were walking some of the same lines, but in a very different way. Take us back 55 years ago this week when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated what was that for you, and how did your lenses differ? Jeff, this go ahead. This was one of our first conversations, and uh, I think both of us came away from it um, uh, just feeling remarkable. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and so uh, everyone knew that Dr. King was in town, and everyone knew, unlike today when he is deified, Martin Luther King Jr. and Muhammad Ali were two of the most hated men in America when I was growing up. And that night, uh, there were fire stations uh, around the city. And back during that time, uh, there was still the civil defense system and the alarm would go off. And we heard an alarm at the fire station. And I first thought, it's the Russians. But turning on the TV and the radio, we heard shots fired at the Lorraine Motel and everybody knew who was staying there. And a couple of minutes later, we heard King taken to the hospital. Then we heard he was dead. And I say sometimes that was the evening that I grew up. I was 11 years old and I thought my parents were superheroes and they were. 
but that was the first time I saw them as vulnerable people. They were crying and they were scared and they didn't know what was going to happen next. And what we were scared of is that the white folks were coming to get the rest of us. And Tom, what what was your experience? Um, okay, so we're both we're both what eleven years old, ten years old, eleven years old. Um, my the the part of Oakland that I lived in was geographically um, call it white. You know, uh, Oakland down in the flat areas. That's <clears throat> that's where essentially the the black folk lived. The white folk lived up up towards the hills. My school was. I'm going to say 99.9% white. We were let go um, early that day because Martin Luther King had been assassinated in Memphis. Martin Luther King at that time was uh, a face in the news. Uh, uh, we had under we had studied to some degree the "I Have a Dream" speech from 1963. He was a public figure uh, that spoke uh, on social issues. But other than that, he was to me was just you know he was he was a guy in the news. But we did know that he was famous, that he was irreverent, and that he was working uh, in what uh, the, the grander aspects of civil rights at a time when you know look the monkeys were on TV you know and uh, it was kind of cool to be working towards civil rights and uh, and understanding between uh, between the races. But that day. When we were when we were walking home from school, the word went out like that that there were already riots down in the in the flats of Oakland, in East Oakland. That there were already signs of armed um, uh, armed black people coming up in cars. There was already a story that someone had seen a car full of black guys. <clears throat> driving fast over uh, over the hill on Tompkins Avenue. There was already a story about someone had seen a black guy in the neighborhood and he was carrying a gun already. None of this was true. But it's the type of it's a type of story that went out like lightning. And so I haven't experienced a day like that in my memory not since we were released from school after John F Kennedy was assassinated and the world seemed very quiet. <clears throat> there was a hush sort of in the air. The, the hurly-burly of the day had given away to some other thing. In 1963, it was of sadness. In 1968, it was of fear. And we, as a bunch of white kids walking uh, home from, uh, from our school there in West Oakland, in the hills of Oakland, we were afraid that the black people were coming to get us because we had killed Martin Luther King. So you're both uh, essentially afraid of each other, not knowing, you know, the other existed. But these stories grow in your mind. How, when, when you know, fear can build up like calluses, how did you decide, each of you, to sand it down and take a different route? You go first, Tom. <laughs> well, uh, I, I was, I, I reaped a benefit from living in Oakland, near Berkeley, in San Francisco. Oakland, I knew, uh, I grew up riding the bus, the public, public transportation, with everybody of color in the city. There was always Asians, there were always Latinos, there was always Blacks, there was always Whites on the same AC transit buses. 
We went to the same Oakland A's games. We rooted for the same Oakland Raiders. We went to the same Warriors basketball games. <clears throat> and we uh, we actually moved about the city uh, uh, outside of any sort of, uh, as I said, geographical um, uh, division, uh, other than geographical divisions elsewhere. I thought I lived, I thought the rest of the world was was like Oakland. And growing up there, knowing that this ongoing, this, there was, there was a tide that was sweeping both in and out, both ebbing and flowing, because I grew up in Oakland where the Black Panthers had, uh, were, were certainly making headlines. And even I knew that you could read some, some of the quotes that were coming from both sides of the reportage of the, of the Black Panthers. And there was, <clears throat> there was an awful lot of accusations, but there was also any number of things that you, I couldn't help but read from the words of somebody like Alfred Cleaver and think, well, that's not necessarily wrong, uh, what is being said here. And to, to, to live in a city that was, that was peace, relatively, I would say, actually peacefully on the front lines of the divide between uh, black and white, the, 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 uh, the racial divide in America, provided me with, I think, an opportunity and a sensibility that there was a way in order to study this. There was a way in order to listen and to learn and to, and to read and communicate that uh, would actually progress us from a place of some degree of common knowledge. And this is one of the other reasons that I was relatively outraged at never being told about Tulsa. Because if I had learned in fifth grade about the Tulsa massacre, it would have very much <clears throat> uh, uh, helped me, uh, given me a perspective on the way I felt about Oakland on the day Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And I want to pull us back a little bit, a lot further in history um, to the documentary, Jeffrey. It is about um, the first presidential election after the Civil War. Um, walk us through how it was rigged. It was a couple before, the, before this one, but it was one of the first ones after the Civil War because it was 1877. Facts matter, and thank you for checking. <laughs> um, Jeffrey, walk us through the 1876 election and um, why do you say it was rigged and, and what were the stakes at this point? The stakes of this election were huge because you have to remember this is 11 years after the Civil War ended. And I think it's important for people to remember that the Civil War was based on a concept about black Americans that had been steeped in our culture for a quarter millennium, for 246 years. And so it's important to remember, do you really think people are gonna give up beliefs that have been honed over that period of time simply because they lost a war? So the white supremacy that was a part of what caused the Civil War, it didn't go away at the end of the Civil War. It was still bubbling there. And in 1876, the presidential election came, <clears throat> came down to essentially three states, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. And the delegates from those states were going to decide the election. And there were disputes about what delegates were going to be seated. Would they be for the Republican? Uh, Hayes or for the Democrat Tilden. And so they couldn't literally decide. Congress had to pass a law creating a commission to decide who was going to win 
the presidential election. And that commission took several months. What we wanted to do in this film is to give folks a summary of what was going on. And I think uh, for just to go a little bit deeper, people should understand uh, the country is in chaos. The election is in November. One side says we've won. The other side says we've won. Things are in chaos. And by late February, there are three meetings that occur on February 26. One in the House Appropriations Committee room, one in the Finance Committee room, and one at a hotel called Warmly House. And in these rooms, there were negotiations between the Republicans and the Democrats. And what they came down to is the Democrats wanted to run the South the way they wanted to run the South. And they needed the Northern troops gone, and they needed an assurance that they'd be able to do what they wanted to do. So I just want to finish by reading you two messages that were delivered on February 27th. And to show you how widespread this was, the, the, the dispute was about South Carolina and Louisiana, but the two people who sent these messages from the Hayes camp Stanley Matthews, an Ohio lawyer and counsel for the Republicans before the commission to decide the presidency, and Charles Foster, an Ohio congressman who became governor of Ohio. And they didn't write these notes to representatives from South Carolina or Louisiana. They wrote them to Senator John Gordon of the state of Georgia and Governor John Young Brown from Kentucky. This was the first note. Gentlemen, Referring to the conversation had with you yesterday in which Governor Hayes's policy as to the status of certain southern states was discussed, we desire to say that we can assure you in the strongest possible manner of our great desire to have adopted such a policy as will give to the people of the states of South Carolina and Louisiana the right to control their own affairs. They wrote another note about an hour later and what they said is, subject only to the Constitution of the United States. They kind of forgot that part. But what they were saying was, you will be able to run things the way you want to run things. And yeah. that's what Tom talked about in the second part of our little short documentary, what happened after that decision. You know, you're, you're pulling from primary documents. You're reading from actual texts that we have in history, and yet, um, these, these might be um, erased from certain textbooks in Florida now, right? There are memory laws being passed. We have the politicization of the very um, primary facts that you're talking about. Tom, why are you wading into this? You're a storyteller, not a politician. Um, why is this important in this moment in our country? Well, as Ben Bradley, said, he used to run the Washington Post, the truth, no matter how painful, is much less dangerous than a lie in the long run. The idea that some degree of learning about our history is going to be made either illegal or so, so, so far removed that you'll have to go off and work in order to determine uh, the, the, the truth of what happened in our past, number one, I think, is insulting to us as Americans and as grown-ups. Who can take who can who can take our past, uh, learn from it, and understand? Well, hey, look how far we've come. If I was going to say 
what it would be the best thing that could come about by the specific teaching of such things as American, any number of things that are trying to be banned by any number of states, not just, not just Florida, is this, is look, it's going to rob us of the progress that we have made as America. The, the preamble to the Constitution states these beautiful words, in order to form a more perfect union. If we can no longer discuss our faults, if we can no longer be taught about the mistakes that nine generations prior to us living made, how in the world are we going to progress towards making a more perfect union? We have to see our missteps, and I think we have to see them to a degree of dispassion. And passion is being brought into a place in which it's, I think it's just being used in order to maintain some sort of a, you know, status quo. That's beyond my pay range, I, I got to tell you. But here's, you know, are we going to learn then somehow, like in his fabulous book, Master, uh, Master of the Senate, about Lyndon Baines Johnson, how thin the margin was of victory that Lyndon Johnson won the Senate race in Texas the year he first entered the Senate, or how John F. Kennedy won the presidency against Richard and Nixon by a paper-thin margin from a bunch of votes from Illinois. We have to know this stuff, because otherwise we are not going to get one step closer to the perfect union than we had uh, in, the late, uh, in the late 1700s. Um, and I think that this, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't anybody who essentially likes to read history books for pleasure not wade into that and simply say, I got to say, man, that is so wrong. The whole idea of saying, no, 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 you must not read books based on our history is some degree of, uh, it's like living in the bizarro world from an old Superman comic book, which which uh, Jeffrey and I know an awful lot about old Superman comic Exactly. Books. And I just want to say real quickly, when I first met Tom, that concept, his focus on a more perfect union in the Constitution was really interesting to me because it is, a, it is an acknowledgement by the people who wrote the Constitution, hey, we're not getting this thing all right right now. This is what we can come up with, and we have a job to make this more perfect. And so the the things that were in the original Constitution that are no longer there, that were horrific, that's a showing of how we, we advance forward. And if we don't know our history, and Tom, I'll pull you out from the George Orwell thing, who controls the past controls the future. If you wipe out the past, you can bring up things today and call them new, when they're actually a hundred years old and they come from a really ugly place. But if you wipe out the past, nobody will ever know that. You know, there there is so much ugliness and darkness in our history and, and yet this film also includes light. I wanna play a clip from the film um, that is that offers some joy. In the decades following the Civil War, the United States emerged as an industrial giant. Railroads crisscrossed the country. Steel bridges connected cities. Skyscrapers and Ferris wheels reached for the heavens. Electrical grids powered homes and businesses. Oil refineries fueled nationwide progress. The telephone and typewriter transformed communication. By the end of the century, we had coffee pots, escalators, elevators, cars, chewing gum, paper clips, and even jello. 
Jello um, means joy, Kate. Who can argue with Jello? You know, this was one of the things that came out about it because my my learning my when I was studying American history, I remember reading about the centennial exhibition of 1876, which celebrated <laughs> the great kick-ass job America was doing as far as moving the world forward, technology and ingenuity and what have you. I mean, all, anything from escalators to coffee pots and certainly Jello. We deserve pats on the back for. It wasn't until Jeffrey brought up and I learned from him about uh, the, the the race of 1876 that made me think, well, there's an example of how we can handle both things as Americans who are paying attention, who want to know about our history. We can certainly celebrate steel bridges and the coffee pot and the Ferris wheel and everything else on the typewriter, along with experiencing the, the machinations of racism and control and maintaining the status quo in, in, uh, in, uh, in the political race. Why did I know so much more about coffee pots and Ferris wheels and so little about the, uh, uh, the uh, electoral college shenanigans between Tilden and, uh, and Hayes. We can handle them both, but only if we have the opportunity to hear both. And that was such a, a pleasure for me as we were doing this, because quite frankly, I didn't know most of those things in that part of the film. And I'm like, holy shit. Oh, I mean, holy whatever. You're right. You know, that those kind of things were being made. And one of the things that we stress in our documentary film is that countries can be more than one thing. America has demonstrated greatness time and time again. And we also have this ugly history of racism. And so dealing with both of them is the way we become more perfect, to coin a phrase. You know, this happens between Jeffrey and I quite a bit because we end up comparing notes. He asked me, say, hey, hey, white kid, what was what was a history lesson that you got in seventh grade? And I say, hey, black guy, what what was the stuff that you guys were talking about around uh, around the, the table? And it is different stuff almost right down to different different nouns and verbs. And yet, we're talking about the same period of our lives. My 13-year-old America was the same America that Jeffrey grew up in, except I'm looking at 10 degrees this side of north, and he's looking at it 10 degrees the other side of north. You know, we, I, we have one question left, and um, we got lots of questions from the audience, and many of them were um, essentially, is our democracy safe and what can I do to protect it? Um, from each of you, what is one thing? Jeff, one go ahead. thing to do is to inform yourself. If you are going to have conversations about why America looks like it does today, then you have to be armed to have those conversations. And I mean armed with facts. The 1619 Project, the Who We Are Project, there are all kinds of resources out there to gather information about the truth about our history. And so I, I would just end by saying uh, it's important to understand that action causes hope. It's not the other way around. Hope does not cause action. So if you are looking for hope, the first place to look is in the mirror. What have I done to inform myself? What organizations am I going to study and maybe become a part of to advance this kind of work? What am I going to say to my family, my workplace, and my community? These are things that we can do as individuals. Thanks. Tom. Uh, 
in, in the process of constantly seeking out the truth, listen without prejudice. <clears throat> Ask, rather, than, rather, than, rather than accuse somebody's sources, just say, tell me more about that. To listen without prejudice, to be curious, to be ever curious of not what just happened, but what can, what can be done. I think uh, the cacophony of everything that, uh, that comes uh, at us from the news sends out a cynical default uh, setting, I believe, yeah, that this is how messed up it is. And this is how this is who is messed it up. And this is why. And here are the pros and here are the cons and here are the victims and here are the victors. And it's never as simple as a protagonist antagonist uh, circumstance. Not now, not in 2022. There is there is a position to be made, but it has to be made from a place of, well, Let's find out what is the truth and what's, let's find out what is the narrative. I think the, I think the concept of narrative is supplanting the, uh, the concept of, uh, um, you know, of, of facts. And that narrative is almost, anybody who is going to tell you a very specific story is doing it in order to gain some degree of purchase. I don't know if, uh, I, I'd be hard pressed to find out that the type of historic reading that uh, that I like to do that is meant to change us into some uh, into some way of thinking or some action. Instead, it just that it always just says, think about this, think about how it has affected you, and think about how to we can guarantee these blessings of liberties to ourselves and our our uh, our, our, our uh, posterity. That's our job right now is to make sure that our America, the one that we envision right now, the one that is closer a little bit to a more perfect union, can continue on that. And not for us, because we're going to be gone. And not even for our kids or even our potentially our grandchildren. That's why I think, as we've seen just recently, that the powers of democracy <clears throat> do turn around until everybody just sees if we don't make this, if we don't do this now, if we don't take these motions now, if we don't learn now, then a lesson is going to be lost for, for our, um, uh, our posterity. And that ain't America. So powerful, so important. I wish we could continue this conversation. I know you both will, um, but thank you for taking this time with us, Jeffrey and Tom. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Kate and Tom. I'll see you soon. All right, Jeffrey, take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.